Good morning. Thank you, Pastor Michael, for that great, great introduction. Will you please stand with me as we, in reverence to the reading of God's holy word. This morning we'll be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. And God's holy word reads, Paul, Silvanius, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of our God and Father your work produced by faith, your love labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel did not come to you in only word, but it also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance. You know how we lived among you for your benefit, and you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord, when in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Let's go to the Lord in prayer in response to reading his holy word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just praise you and thank you for your word, Lord. Lord, I pray that I would decrease in this moment. And Lord, that through this message that you would be increased, Lord. Through this message, we would all learn more about you and draw ourselves closer to you in obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title for my message this morning is... The impactful church. The impactful church. And I have five, five main points that I want to bring to you this morning. Point number one, an impactful church has a mind to work. An impactful church has a mind to work. Secondly, an impactful church has joy in the midst of problems. An impactful church has joy in the midst of problems. Third, an impactful church is bold and excited about being saved. An impactful church is bold and excited about being saved. Four, an impactful church has a dramatic change in the lives of its members. An impactful church has a dramatic change in the life of its members. And fifthly, an impactful church looks with anticipation and expectation for the Lord's return. We are in the book of Thessalonians, and the church of Thessalonica was one of a kind church. This letter to the Thessalonians is one of the few letters not written to address some doctrinal error or wrong behavior in the New Testament church. Paul wrote many letters to different churches for a variety of reasons. He wrote to the Corinthian church to address several sins and to address doctrinal issues that were going on in that church. These, that included divisions over leaders, open immorality by one of its members, members going to court against one another, the abuse of spiritual gifts, abuse of the Lord's table, 
false teaching and the doctrine of the resurrection. Paul also wrote to the Galatians to correct doctrinal error of mixing of faith with works. He wrote to the Colossians to combat false philosophy called Gnosticism that had crept into the church, a subject addressed by John in his three epistles. But 1 Thessalonians was not written to deal with any known doctrinal error or wrong conduct in the church. And we see that in verse 7. Verse 7 reads, As a result, you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The word example in the Greek word, it means tupos. It literally means an impression. It means a mark, a blow, an impress of a seal, a stamp made by a die. Paul was not just saying that they had been good examples, though they were that. Paul was saying that they had made a great impact and they had made a tremendous impression on everyone in the region, throughout Macedonia and Achaia. Now, there are essentially two types of churches. The one that nobody ever hears about, except for in a bad way, cares about, or every, they don't even really want to go to. The second kind of church is the one that people have heard about in a good way which has made a positive impression. A church where the lost are concerned and interested about the church and are curious. I want to go there. I want to see what they're about. And you know what? I know somebody from that church, and they are a zealous believer in Christ. So this morning, let's jump into the characteristics of this church, Thessalonica. And we want to learn from them. We want to learn how do they go about making such a great impact in their community. Because church, I believe that New Breed can make an impact. And more churches in Louisville, especially in the West End, can make an impact for this city. So first, the Church of Thessalonica made an impact because it had a mind to work. Verses 2 and 3. We always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of our God, the Father, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what does Paul point out here? He tells us that this church, that they made an impact. Not only did they make an impact, but they had a mind to work. You never see a lazy church that makes an impact for the Lord. A church that will impact its community, that leaves an unforgettable impact on the lives of its own members, is one where the member says, hey, I want to be first string. Hey, I'm going to show up early. I'm going to be the first one to help set up. I'm going to be the first one to help tear down. I'm going to be the first one to knock on that door. I want to be first. I want to do it. I'm on the phone. Pastor, how can I help out? Pastor, what is our vision and how we are, how are we going to make that happen? Notice how Paul talks about the Thessalonians. He uses three different phrases. He talks about their work of faith, labor, and of love, and patience of hope. So let's examine those. First, Paul commends the Thessalonians 
for their work of faith. How is work and faith interconnected into the Christian life? Well, faith stirs a Christian, right? Faith stirs us to work for the Lord. When a person believes in Jesus Christ, truly believes, he is stirred to work. He or she wants to work for the Lord Jesus Christ, for God our Father. Because the spirit within you, God dwelling within you, will motivate you to do good works. So faith, the spirit, God dwelling, your temple within you, is going to arouse, it's going to stir. And what's going to help that stir? God's word dwelling within you. And that should energize you. But not just you personally. It should energize us collectively to see how we can work for the Lord within the community, within each other. We can see that in James chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. James said, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. So what does the scripture teach us about faith and works? First, it teaches that there's a faith that does not save. We see throughout the New Testament that you can have a dead faith. But alternatively, we see that faith and works are directly connected and a direct result of our faith in Jesus Christ. Secondly, Paul commends the Thessalonians for their labor of love. Love also stirs a church to labor. The word labor in the Greek is kapeo, which means to toil, to labor to the point of exhaustion, to arboriously labor. When a person truly loves Christ, he or she is prompted and driven to vigorously labor for Christ. He looks at the love of God for him, the giving of his son on the cross, the blood that was shed that day, and you cannot help but to get stirred. When you truly understand what was done for you, you cannot help to be motivated to want to reciprocate that love back. And that's what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 14 to 15, for when he said, for the love of Christ, it compels us. There should be you should be compelled, he goes on, since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves. And listen, church, he says, but the one who died for them and was raised, we should be living, working for Jesus Christ. Verse 14, for the love of Christ compels us. Some say, some versions, you'll see there where it says constraint, controls us, 
The love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, the one died for all, therefore all died. And this is a very, very important verse. The essence of it in the flow of thought of Paul is that he is constrained. He is compelled in his mind, pressured, driven. He is motivated by the love of Christ. He's motivated, motivated by it so much that he must ne be, never be put in a position where he can never offer back to Christ the love that was shown to him out of gratitude for what Christ has done for you and for me. Paul was one where he would defend his ministry in order that its fullness and its riches may be offered as an act of gratitude back to the one who loved him first. And when it says for the love of Christ, he's not talking about his love for Christ. So let's get that straight. He's talking about Christ's love for him. And the context clearly demonstrates that because he follows up by saying, having concluded this, that one died for all. In other words, it is the love of Christ manifesting the death of Christ that overwhelms Paul. Paul's not overwhelmed with his own love for Christ. He's not saying, I'm driven by my, my own love for him. Even though that might be part of his motivation. He's saying, I'm driven out of the gratitude of his love for me that was so great when Christ died for me. And he points to Christ's love for him. Thirdly, Paul commends the Thessalonians for their patience of hope. The word hope in the New Testament is frequently linked to the second coming of Christ. Since verse 10 refers to the second coming of Christ, it's probable that this patience of hope Paul is referring to. We see in Titus chapter 2 verse 13, talks of this hope where Paul says, While we wait for the blessed hope of the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Greek word for patience, hypones, it also means endurance, steadfastness, perseverance. Hope in the Lord's return stirs the church to endure in its own work and labor. Knowing that the Lord could come at any time and we should not face the Lord empty-handed, that should stir us to work and labor. Paul also said in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at a proper time if we don't give up. Church, it's easy not to be steadfast in our work and love for the Lord. It's easy to become weary, especially with work and raising children. It's easy to become weary. Just remember, someday Jesus will come again. If we don't give up, that is, if we don't stop our well-doing for Christ, if we don't get weary in our good works, Paul promises that we will reap reward. God promises that we will reap rewards. And those rewards might not be in this life. It might be at the judgment seat of Christ. But you want to hear those, those words. Great job, my good and faithful servant. 
Also in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Paul exhorts us, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So the first reason the church of Thessalonica made such an impact was because it had a will to work for Christ. Secondly, it made an impact because it had joy in the midst of problems. Joy in the midst of problems. Verse 6. And you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord, when in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. One of the most powerful things that impresses people positively about faith in Christ is when they see Christians who have joy even in the midst of problems and challenges, destruction all around them. It confounds them. How do I have that countenance? How do I have that patience? I'll be balled up and teared up and snot-nosed. And all you can say is my love for Christ compels me to move through this situation, to move through this storm. And the world, they don't understand. It just blows their mind. That's why we ought to have the philosophy of a tea kettle. To be up in our necks in hot water, but yet still singing. Our problem is that we can let circumstances overcome our joy rather than letting our joy overcome our circumstances. You can have joy even in trials. How? There's only one way. To walk in the Spirit and thus produce His fruit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 to 23. God's word reads, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Also, we can be reminded of the story of Joseph. And if it's okay, church, I'm going to take a little quick detour, but I promise we're going to be, we'll get right back, but it's a detour of encouragement. And I know I went to Boyce College and I have a degree in expository preaching. You're not supposed to take detours. No, you're not supposed to have five points. It's way too long. But, uh, you know, Pastor Michael didn't say I had a time limit. So <laughs> if you have your Bibles, or on, you can turn to Genesis or your phone. You can turn to Genesis chapter 37. And then looking through, we'll be looking at, just peruse through these couple chapters. Genesis chapter 37, verse 2, we find Joseph at the age of 17 years old, bringing a bad report to Jacob, his father, about his brothers. Now, some could view this as Joseph being a little tattletale, but I truly think that Joseph loved his father and had a report to him what was going on with his brothers. Now, we find his brothers, we find him in verse 3, that his father loved him more than the rest of his brothers because his father made him a beautiful robe. 
in verse 4, the result of that are his brothers get so jealous that they don't even want to talk to him on friendly terms. We find a warning to parents here to be careful on how you favor your children. Now, Joseph had two dreams in which he would rule over his family, but the first dream he told his brothers, and they were like, you tripping, so you need to go back and have another dream. So what? He had a second dream, and he revealed to them that he was going to rule not only over his brothers, but his father also, and what did they do? They rebuked him. And to make a long story short, his brothers ganged up on him. They stripped him of his beautiful robe. They sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And that's the average salary of about eight shekels a year. So that way they were selling him, if you think about it, for over two years worth of salary. Then the Ishmaelites took Joseph down to Egypt and sold him to an Egyptian official named Potiphar. And for the next 13 years, just imagine that, the next 13 years would turn out to be the most trying and difficult years of Joseph's life. And you can just imagine that Joseph said more than once, Lord, why is this happening to me? I thought I had special plans. Lord, I thought you loved me. I thought we were intimate. We prayed so many times intimately together. Why is this happening? I thought I was going to be successful. He probably said, you know, I probably don't deserve the Brother of the Year award, but I don't think I deserve this. But the thing I love about Joseph is that even though his life had been turned completely upside down, his relationship with God stayed exactly the same. Four times in Genesis, chapter 39 tells us that the Lord was with Joseph. We see that in verses 2, 3, 21, 23. From the very beginning of the story, straight through the end of Genesis, Joseph puts all his trust and all of his faith in God. The first thing I want you to notice is that Joseph was a righteous and responsible man. In Genesis chapter 39, verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph and he was successful. And verse 3 says that when Potiphar saw that the Lord was with him and that God gave him success in everything that he did, he put Joseph in charge of everything he owned. In fact, verse 6 says that he trusted Joseph so much that he did not concern himself with anything except for food that he ate. Then moving on in verse 20, Joseph got thrown into prison for a crime he didn't commit. But even in prison, even in prison, Joseph showed that he was reliable. Verse 22 says that the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. What I love about Joseph is that no matter where you put him, no matter what he does, he succeeds. Why does he succeed? Because the Lord is with him. And when the Lord is with you, you can have joy, my brothers and sisters. He gets thrown into prison. And the next thing you know, he's assistant warden. Joseph was the kind of guy where if life gave him a lemon, he truly would make lemonade. He's saying, I don't know why these things keep happening to me. I truly don't know why. But I do know how God wants me to live a lot of my life. 
And no matter where I'm at, no matter what I'm doing, where I'm going, I'm going to do the best job I can do, and I'm going to trust in the Lord every day. Eventually, Pharaoh hears about Joseph and how well he interprets dreams. In the ancient world, it was widely believed that gods revealed mysteries to kings in their sleep. And so kings, they were always on the lookout for these people who say that they can interpret dreams. And in Genesis 41, 28, Joseph interprets the Pharaoh's dreams. He tells them that there will be seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine and that Pharaoh should appoint a wise and discerning man to take care of Egypt and to get people ready for the seven years of famine. And listen to what Pharaoh says in Genesis chapter 41, 38. He says, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the spirit of God? And he puts Joseph in charge of the palace, made him ruler over all of Egypt. God was with Joseph. There's no doubt about it. But the other reason why Joseph succeeded in spite of his circumstances is because wherever he was, no matter who he was serving, he always gave it his best. He always had joy. He never forgot who his Lord was. He always showed that he was responsible. And that should be a representation to us that we can always do our best. We can always be joyful exactly where God has placed us even today. Even if it's where a job where you, you don't like things. Even if it's a job where you can even get away with things. I hear people say, when I get a better job, that's when I'm going to be faithful. That's when I'm going to give it everything I've got. That's when I'm going to do the best that I can. Well, the question is, well, what are you doing with the, with the job you got right now? Are you honest and hardworking and faithful with the little bit of responsibility that God has given you right now? Luke chapter 16, verse 10 says, Whoever can be trusted with the very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with very much. If you are not faithful and honest with the little bit of responsibility that you do have, what makes you think you're going to be responsible with greater things? That's not how it works. You have to show the Lord that you can be trusted. And that's what Joseph did. He passed God's responsibility test. He's passed God's emotional test of faith within him. So Joseph was a success in the eyes of God because he was a moral man. He was a trusting man. Genesis chapter 39, verse 7 says that Joseph was well-built and good-looking. And after a while, Potiphar's wife took notice of him and she said, Come in with me to bed. Any lesser man would have said it's nice to be wanted. After all the drama I done been through, it's been 12, 13 years. I deserve a little bit of pleasure. I'm a slave in a foreign country. I've lost my freedom. I've lost my dreams, my hopes, my aspirations. I might as well lose my morals too. And no one's going to find out, right? No one's going to find out those little things that we do. But that's not what Joseph did. 
Instead, he said, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? He said, I'm a moral man. He cared about his relationship with God. So what happened? Potiphar's wife made up a story accusing Joseph. And her husband believed it. And Joseph was thrown into prison. And you could just imagine what Joseph's thinking, right? He's like, why whenever I try to do the right thing, I get in trouble? Son asked me that. I don't know how many times I'm doing the right thing. No, you didn't do the right thing. Resisting temptation doesn't always feel good at the time. In the short short run, you may regret it. You may say to yourself, I really wanted that. I really wanted to be with him or her. Or if I only changed a few numbers, I'd get a little bigger return, and that would help me out. Or I could save thousands of dollars. But in the long run, you'll always be more grateful when you trust in the Lord. You'll be able, because you'll be able to look back and you'll be able to say, thank God I didn't take the easy way out. Thank God I didn't ruin my marriage. Thank God that I didn't lose the love and respect for the people that I love. Thank God that I didn't shipwreck my relationship with Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. The lesson that we get from Joseph's story is that in the long run, it pays to do the right thing. It pays to have love and joy and trust in God. It also means being a man or woman that believes that God is good. So many times when bad things happen to good people, they just throw in the towel. Some people might say, well, God took my beautiful wife away from me or my husband. He can't be good. There's a real God out there. He would have kept him or her with me. I'm done. And you just name it. Things that happen in people's lives. That one thing happens, they throw in the towel, they're done. You never see them again. But a believer in Jesus Christ says, I don't know why God allows bad things to happen, but I believe with all my heart that God is good. I believe with all my heart that God has good reasons for why he does what he does and why he allows what he allows. I may not find out in this life, but no matter what, I will put all my hope, I'll put all my trust, in the Lord. And that's what Joseph did. He could have been mad at his brothers who sold him into slavery. He could have nursed a grudge against them. He could have blamed the whole thing on God, but you know what? He didn't. When his brothers asked him for forgiveness, moving on in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he said to them, you planned evil against me, but God planned it for the good to bring about the present result the survival of so many lives. So don't be afraid, brothers and sisters. When you're going through that storm, you don't know how many people on the other side of that storm is depending on you to make it throughout. They're standing on the other side of that storm waiting for you to come out. And that's the type of attitude that we need in the church today. We need to understand that no matter what we may go through, no matter how bad things might get, No matter how the enemy attacks us, always remember in the dark these two words, but God. But God, can I get an amen?
If you know what I'm talking about. You see, the devil always tries to bring confusion when there is order. If good things are happening, he wants to break it down. The devil thinks that he has it all worked out. But God, he thought he could stop the plan. But God, he thought he could stop the people of God. But God, all of us used to be like them in the world. But God, our lives expresses the evil within us. Doing, we used to be like them, doing every type of wicked thing you could think of. But God, our passions, our evil thoughts, they led us into places where we knew that we shouldn't have been. And then one faithful day, but God showed up and took you out of that place. We all started out bad, being born of destructive natures, and we were all under God's wrath, just like everybody else. But God is so rich in mercy. He loved us so much that even though we were spiritually dead, even though we were doomed in our sins, he gave us back our lives again. Only by his undeserved favor have we ever been saved and lifted up from the grave into glory along with Christ. And we were raised up to sit in the heavenly realms. And he blessed us with every unimaginable gift, unnumerable gift. I'm just trying to tell you, brothers and sisters, this morning that no matter the situation, no matter how bad it might look, no matter how bad you've been treated, no matter whether it's day or night, remember, but God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 to 11, it says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexual immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Brothers and sisters, Satan says... Such were some of you, but God says you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Satan says you can't make it on your own, but God says if I am for you, I am more than the world against you. Satan says hold on to all your problems because no one can help you, but God says cast all your cares on me, for I care for you so much that I sent my son for you. Satan says take the easy way out. But God says the race is not given to the swift or the strong, but the one who endures to the end. Satan says that your enemies have surrounded and come out with your hands up. But God says, I'll make your enemies your footstool. Satan says sickness will follow you. But God says you are healed. Satan says there's nothing else that the doctors can do. But God says, you know, I'm going to go in here because my brothers and sisters and new breed have been praying for you. And I'm going to change the diagnosis. I will make you a slave of sin, the, 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 Satan says. But God says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Satan says, I'll take your son and hold him in the grave. But God, what did God say? He says, after three days, I will raise him up again. Satan says, I've got him now. But God says, death, where's your sting? Let me show you this grave, this empty tomb 
of my victory. Brothers and sisters, see the lies and disparaging words of your enemy. Realize that God has the final word. See things from the Father, our Lord and Savior's perspective. Incline your ear to hear. But God, especially when Satan is telling you you are defeated, but you need to listen to our Lord and Savior, says you have the victory. And every time you feel low, brothers and sisters, I encourage you to think of but God. Whenever it seems like the devil has his foot holding you down and realize that you can't beat him on your own, you know you need to lean to but God can do this for me. Because God sent his only begotten son to live and to die as a payment for my sins. And that's what we have to do. We have to make it personal. He died for you. He died for me. And but God rose early one Sunday morning with all the power in his hands. And he didn't get up with black power. He didn't get up with white power. He didn't get up with any other power but the power of the Father. And that's why I can stand for you here today and let you know that God will take care of you. God can give sight to the blind. He can make the lame man walk. It's also saying he can make the dumb man talk. Nobody else but God. I pray that you'll remember, but God can do anything but fail. There are many times in life when we as believers will be experiencing some type of terrible obstacle, sorrow or disappointment in life. But in these times, we can also experience the joy in the midst of all those challenges. And this church, referring to the church of Thessalonica, not only made an impression because it had the will for Christ, but also had a joy in the midst of trials. Moving on to my third point, the church of Thessalonica made an impact because it was bold and excited about being saved. Bold and excited about being saved. Verse 8, for the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything. So what does that tell us about the church of Thessalonica that it made such a great impact? It means that they got excited about being saved. So excited that they had to spread the good news. I can't, just can't keep this in. I got to spread it. They couldn't keep silent. They were so excited about the Christian life. They were so excited about what God had done for them. And I don't know about you, but getting saved was the best thing that ever happened in my life. Getting saved was better than me getting married to my wife, seeing my children born, getting saved was the best thing that ever happened to me because it set up love in all of those other areas. It's the foundation of everything that happens after that. And even if somebody was coming up to give me, uh, you just name them out, $100 billion, I ain't giving that back. It's not going to be worth it. We ought to be excited about the Lord. And you know, 
That is, you know, when you were in your youth or whenever you came to, to know the Lord, you were just so excited. You probably went to conferences and, and everything you could even think of. But if we're not careful, as time goes on, as life goes on, we can lose that excitement. What causes us to lose the excitement in the Christian life? I just want to list a couple things that cause us to lose our excitement in the Christian life. Sometimes it's sin. Sometimes it's the wrong response when you're in the midst of a storm. Sometimes it's a violation of God's principles. Sometimes it's a lack of spiritual growth, not staying in your word, not staying prayed up, not connecting with others in the church. Sometimes it's not even sharing your faith that led to that moment of you being so excitement, so excited. Or ultimately, we have to ensure that we keep that excitement. Because that is the excitement that leads us to doing good works. Number four, the fourth reason the Thessalonian church made an impact is because there had been a drastic change in the life of its members. Verse 9, For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You see, when a person is truly saved, there's a change. There's a change in his life. And that change might not be everything you can name and everything, but there's going to be a change. That person, he or she, you're not going to love the same things you used to love. You're not going to do the same things you, you used to do. That doesn't mean that within you, you might have those temptations and urgings to want to do some of those things. But it means that you have the spirit dwelling within you to help you. You have God's word within you. You have a church community within you to help you to say, no, nah, brothers and sisters, not today. You ain't got to be involved with that. You ain't got to think that way. You ain't got to go there. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. And he says, see, the new has come. In Romans chapter 6, in the first five chapters of Romans, Paul explains the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, without any works on our part added to it. In chapter 6, he deals with the charge that some made then and We'll hear today in some places that if we preach that salvation is by grace alone and that our works do not have anything to do with or maintaining our salvation, people will just choose to choose Christ as a fire escape from hell. You heard of bedside confessions. And they all find this controversial. Because some think that you can just live how you want to live. But let's look at Paul's response to this. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. What should we say then? Should we continue to live in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died still live in it? In the whole of chapter Romans chapter 6, Paul's argued that the believer is freed from the power of sin. Yes, you and I can and will sin, 
But if we can comfortably live in sin without acknowledging God's working in our heart, without experiencing any type of conviction while you're in that sin, without experiencing any type of guilt, that's when we should examine whether we truly know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. No wonder why the Thessalonian church made such an impact. It was because there was a dramatic change from their worship of idols, a dramatic change from from serving idols to serving the true and one God. The lost around them could not miss it. But what they were really, really noticing in the church of Thessalonica was the work of God in their lives. And in today's world, we don't have the normal idols that it talks about, but we do have idols. Our idols are not stone and wood gods, but you name it, there's idols out there. And when we trust in Christ, we'll see a change. And that change takes place in the lives of new believers. When the lost see hypocrites, it turns them off from Christianity. It turns them off from Christ. That's why we're called ambassadors. But when they see people whose lives have been changed, when your cousin or your auntie or you name it sees the change in you, it sparks something in their brain. It triggers something. I want to know why. And the church of Thessalonica made an impact because it had the will to work. It had joy in the midst of trials and difficulty. It was excited about being saved, so their faith towards God was spread throughout the region. And there had been dramatic change in the lives of its members. And lastly, the church of Thessalonica made an impact because it looked upon with anticipation and expectation for the Lord's return. Verses 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So the question is, what is the wrath to come? Paul here refers to the wrath to come as a seven years, commonly known as the seven year tribulation that the Bible prophesies in many places. But it's fully developed in the book of Revelation. This will be a time of unparalleled horror as God pours out his wrath upon those who've rejected him and followed the Antichrist, but it's a great comfort to know that his believers will be delivered from this wrath. This is why Thessalonians were waiting for the sun from heaven. We not have time to look into this in great detail today, but the Bible deals with what's commonly called as the rapture, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 to 18. We do not want you to be informed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest for, ha- for those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from the heaven with the shout of the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, we are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. 
And this truth of what was to come, the hope, it electrified the Thessalonian Christians. But does the word wait mean to sit around and do nothing? Just the opposite. The word wait was used in connection to the second coming means the exact opposite of sitting around and doing nothing. It means living your life in such a way that you would not be ashamed of the gospel. You would not be ashamed of the good news of Jesus Christ. And here are a couple of verses along those lines. 1 John chapter 2, 28. So now little children remain in him so that we, so when he appears, they may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Titus 2, 12 to 13, instructing us to deny godliness and worldly lust and to live in sensible righteousness and godly way in the present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. 1 John chapter 2, 28. So now, little children, remain in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And as I close, brothers and sisters, I want to let you know that we are in a moment in time in which Newbury Church can, and I truly believe, will make an impact in Louisville. And that is why me and my family, we trust in the Lord and that we were called here to New Breed because New Breed can and will be an impactful church in Louisville. Because New Breed has the mind to work. New Breed has joy in the midst of problems. New Breed is bold and excited about being saved. New Breed has shown a dramatic change in the life of its members. And because New Breed looks with anticipation and expectation for the Lord's return. And I'll leave you with this verse. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. And that's a well-known verse, but listen to this. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written that the righteous will live by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just praise you and thank you for this message, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would leave this room closer to you, more faithful to you, and more on fire and excited and joyful because of this message, Lord, today. Lord, help us to leave this room not the same that we came in. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.